Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with ACE Cultural Tours. Hello, I'm Artemis Irvin, and this week I'm speaking to Dr. Emma Wells about her new book, Heaven on Earth, The Lives and Legacies of the World's Greatest Cathedrals. Emma, welcome to Travels Through Time. It's such a delight to have you on. You're my first guest of season six, so thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you ever so much for inviting me. It's wonderful to be here. So Heaven on Earth, The Lives and Legacies of the World's Greatest Cathedrals. This is a really beautiful book, and we were just talking about it before we started recording. It's physically a beautiful item, so many pictures, but it's also, it's beautiful in its content as well, if that's not too cheesy a thing to say, because cathedrals are like these amazing feats of human achievement. I mean, genuinely kind of awe-inspiring, both in their beauty and the kind of technical skill involved in them. When did you first become interested in and, and passionate about cathedrals? Well, I'd have to go, I suppose... I have to go right back to my childhood, I think. And my grandmother used to take me around all of our local castles and monasteries and churches. And in North Yorkshire, uh, we're blessed with quite a few from the medieval era. And I was just fascinated. And even as a child, I was particularly taken and keen on and had a fascination with experiencing the past. I think I'd be an interpreter if I wasn't, you know, doing what I do now. But I just wanted to know how people lived and why they lived like they lived. And I found that in churches, as I went on to university to do art history, I I found myself undertaking a lot of medieval modules and a lot of medieval modules focused around the church. And I just became fascinated with the, the elements of ecclesiastical buildings that you wouldn't know were there unless you studied them. You wouldn't know the significance and symbolism inherent within church buildings, you know, everything from numerological significance, um, you know, how many panels are in a window, how long a nave is, to the more hidden elements, you know, the, the naughty aspects, the quirky aspects, the funny and satirical, which is also in our churches. And I think the church itself is a microcosm of society. So you get to see how people lived really within those buildings. And so that, that's where it came from, I think. And do you have a memory of a particular cathedral that you visited as a child where you had a kind of emotional reaction to it or you had a kind of moment where you're like, this is amazing? I used to get that a lot when I went into York. Um, you know, York is my sort of biggest local city, if you will. And I always remember driving through through the city over the bridge and being bombarded by that hulking mass of a west front um, with the great um, heart of Yorkshire in the tracery. And it, it was just fascinating. She, of course, there is no cathedral close anymore enclosing the cathedral precinct, but it was, I think that was the point. It just dominates the entirety of the city. It is the first thing you see as you drive into York, even from, um, from the outskirts. So I think it was that really, and, and it's illuminated stained glass windows as well. It's, I mean, York Minster really is the ideal, the epitome of the high Gothic style. So 
there is no better one to to give you an emotional re- reaction if you will mm. I remember visiting York a few years ago and having that exact same thing you come suddenly you come across it and it's it is absolutely beautiful you cover York in the book you also cover a range of um, other cathedrals from England and from Europe and further afield I think if we can say that Hagia Sophia technically uh, yes yeah. yes <laughs> how did you go about choosing those cathedrals very difficult <laughs> my I'll be honest my area of interest is the gothic era as is quite obvious. But the reason that I chose the Gothic era was because I see it as the highest point of cathedral building and, you know, such a great achievement in Western architecture in general, civilization in general. Therefore, because I focused on the Gothic era and therefore the Middle Ages, I only had obviously certain cathedrals to choose from. But I did choose specifically cathedrals that had an interesting backstory is the the simplest way to put it so they all had very interesting construction narratives so it might be everything from you know the harrying of the north to the slaying of saint thomas beckett you know to um neighbors from hell over at salisbury it was or the cult of carts over in northern france so many different things were sort of start each chapter so many different stories start each chapter because and they were chosen because they were interesting it's like let's hook the reader in and tell them how fascinating and sometimes prosaic their construction tales were but they're perhaps tales that they wouldn't necessarily know and you know in all in all honesty there were all there were four that didn't make it to the book in the end which was supposed to because the book got too big so you know we were supposed to we were supposed to go to russia even so you know, it, it, we did. I did my best using the ones I could, but they were all specifically for that those construction narratives. Yeah, was Durham Cathedral one of the four? But Durham wasn't. But I'll tell you why. The reason that Durham isn't in there is simply because I've written and published on Durham because I did my PhD on Durham. I went to Durham University, um, so I know that cathedral extremely well. And it okay. We have the Hagia Sophia, which starts the book. But the majority really are Gothic. And I could argue that Durham is Romanesque or Anglo-Norman, if you will. So I want to I want to leave Durham for another book, let's say, later down the line. Well, that's good to hear. We're, we're Peter and myself are both Durham, former Durham students as well. So I had to had to just find out, <laughs> just had to just confirm. Um, I just wanted to pick up on something you said about when you were studying art history and you started studying the Gothic and you started realizing that there was there's so much to be found out that's hidden in a cathedral um, that you wouldn't necessarily know from looking at, at it. And I really wanted to ask you about this because I think lots of people, myself included, might go to a cathedral, go to a church and not really know how to interpret it or not really know how to read it other than thinking what an amazing space or um, maybe perhaps have a kind of spiritual um, feeling in in those walls. But reading the architecture and interpreting it, what advice would you have for somebody who is going to visit a cathedral in the next couple of months? Mm -hmm. What, What should they look out for in order to get the most they can out of it? Yeah, it's a great question, and and it's something I'm actually particularly um, passionate about. That is um, education when it comes to churches, because they they aren't just buildings; they are specifically designed for certain reasons. Every single element pretty much has a meaning behind it, and so if one doesn't know those meanings, I think the best 
well, read the book, of course, because you, some things from that, and there's a great glossary in the back of the book, and that was specifically for that case, is if you don't know what a nave is, if you don't know what a clerestory is, etc. But there are some great um, teaching guides out there, books, how to read churches, those sorts of things. And, okay, that some of them, I don't think many of them are particularly wonderfully written or wonderfully uh, clear, but they, they will at least start you on the path. And if you have a plan in front, and you can understand if you're going to a parish church or a cathedral, you're studying the nave, that's the Western end. Of course, we are talking about Christian cathedrals, let's say, in the broadest term. Um, if you're studying the nave, you are in the West end, and there is a hierarchy of symbolism towards the east where the high altar is. You have transepts north and south. That's your very, very basic plan form, and that there is, even still to this day, uh, segregation between east and west and that the everyday the layman laywoman their space if you will is the nave and the east is reserved for clergy let's say in very simple terms and that hierarchy has always been there will always exist i i, I believe um if that is understood then you can probably start to unravel and appreciate why churches and cathedrals are laid out how how they are and therefore, if you walked into York Minster, for example, if you looked in the nave and you really looked closely at the stained glass windows at either side of the nave aisles, the north and the south, and you looked at the borders, for example, the marginalia, as it's called, around the religious subjects within the main, the main lights, you'll see there are everyday allegorical type images. There are humorous images. There are allegorical images. And then if you go move towards the east, you'll see that they get far more Biblical, for example, far more associated with, I don't know, the, the patron saint, which is St. William of York. There's a great window to him. Opposite that, St. Cuthbert, who's mm -hmm. you know, the great other northern saint. And mm -hmm. right in the great east window is the book of Revelation, essentially. So it starts to unravel why windows are sighted where they are, why they contain the iconography, you know, the, um, the stories, the tales, why they do that. And as you keep going, then you'll see, oh, there's a window to Saint So-and-so there. There used to be an altar. You know, it's so it it will start to unravel. And to be honest, the best advice is go to churches and mm. photograph them. You know, there is no better advice and no better experience and expertise than just going to these buildings and seeing how and why they differ from region to region or place to place. Mm. And that's why it's going to be such a treat to visit three three different cathedrals in our conversation today. So I think it's time for me to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests on Travels Through Time, which is that if you could travel through time, what year would you visit? I have chosen 1220, which is a very busy year. Great. So we're in 1220. And where are we going first? What's the first scene that we're going to visit? The first scene is the scene of St. Thomas Beckett's translation or elevation from his tomb in the crypt of Canterbury to the shrine above in Canterbury Cathedral. So that's where we are going first. Brilliant. So maybe a bit of... Um... A bit of backstory about why Thomas Beckett's shrine has been moved in the first place. What's happened to Canterbury Cathedral? So, of course, St Thomas Beckett was slaughtered, if you will, in uh, December 1170 by the four knights of Henry II. 
Technically, they shouldn't have done it. Technically, he didn't order it, but they did go in, and in the northwest transept of Canterbury Cathedral, they slayed Beckett there. They essentially cut his cranium off, sliced him right atop the skull, and he fell down in the northwest transept there. The reason for this, I we would be here all day if I went into the story, but let's just say this that Thomas Beckett, the Archbishop of Canterbury, he had been very good friends with Henry II throughout his lifetime, but he started to speak out against, uh, for the church essentially, and against the state in very simple terms. And Henry got a little bit annoyed, let's just put it that way. Um, so the knights come over from France where they heard Henry say the, he didn't, Henry II didn't say the turbulent priest line. It's a little bit more um it's a little bit more detailed and complex than that one, but I, I can't remember. I was so heartbroken when I found out that's not an actual true line. Yeah. That's <laughs> Edward Grimm was the contemporary who wrote the original. I think I want to say it was 17th, 18th, 19th century was actually where the, the turbulent police, petulant priest came from. So I'm afraid he didn't say that. Uh, so after Thomas Beckett was slain, he was later interred in a tomb in the east end of Canterbury Cathedral. Now, four years later, unfortunately, Canterbury was hit by a great fire. Whether it was started deliberately or not is still up for debate, but what that meant was the East End essentially went up in flames. Now, the crypt wasn't particularly harmed by this, so he was still there. He was still intact in his Foramina-type tomb, which means Foramina had big porthole-esque openings in in a big stone base. So he was cited in one of those. Now, what this allowed was for Canterbury Cathedral's East End to be rebuilt. So in some respects, it was quite a fortunate happening for the cathedral because, as I say, they could redo it in the great Gothic style that was sweeping over England and Christendom wider. As a result, they they employed their master mason, William of Sons, to create the design and they started reconstructing the East End in the new Gothic style. And it's one of the earliest arguably the earliest gothic building or gothic style structure in England. Unfortunately, during the construction, William of Sons fell to his death, fell and then died. He went back over to France and unfortunately passed away. And so William the Englishman, his apprentice, he took over. So there is a slight break in style. This therefore allowed them to create in the East End a sumptuous super shrine, if you will, for St. Thomas Beckett, who'd recently been canonized. So he was now a saint. And what the monastic community, who are a Benedictine community at Christchurch uh, Cathedral at Canterbury, as it was, uh, Priory, should I say, um, they created this huge, massive super shrine, um, arguably the greatest in the land it became, covered in gemstones and jewels, Um, and therefore he was raised, he was physically elevated, moved his relics, his remains from the tomb in the east end, the crypt in the east end, and elevated up into his shrine, which is essentially right atop it, right above it, just on the floor above, if you will, in the new Trinity Chapel of the east end of Canterbury, and then they created a corona, as it's called, right at the east end, so it's sort of does a sort of circular shave right at the, the end, semicircular apse at the end of the cathedral. And that was reserved for the the relics, the relic of his um, severed skull. So therefore, this huge big super shine and all the windows around were stained glass images depicting the life cycle, the life, the death, the miracles of St. Thomas Beckett. Mm. 
I love that phrase, super shrine. <laughs> That's I so mean, good. it literally is. I mean, it's yeah. a shrine within a shrine within a shrine. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a bit about the super shrine. Mm-hmm. You have some really wonderful stories about the experience of pilgrims who came to visit this shrine. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously a really important part of the cathedral's life. First of all, I wanted to talk a bit about why pilgrims um, were visiting Canterbury. Like, why was it an important part if you were a Christian? What was the sort of um, spiritual responsibility to go and visit a shrine like um, Thomas Beckett's? Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to talk a bit about some of the the stories that you tell in the book and I particularly loved Chaucer's telling of the, the pilgrims misinterpreting the stained glass windows inside the church. Could you tell the listeners a bit about why do pilgrims go to visit cathedrals like Canterbury? Yeah well this is a actually a really important part of the whole book and story of the gothic cathedral. If it wasn't for saints and their relics, their remains, there wouldn't be the great gothic cathedrals that we have. Essentially, going back right back to the ninth century, um, Charlemagne, Emperor Charlemagne said that, and this has been sort of long running, but he um, he said that every altar needed to have a relic in it in order for the church to be essentially authenticated, if you will, proper sacred, you know, temple to God. And what this created was a vast enterprise, an economic enterprise as well, for the purchasing the. Um, the swapping, the moving, buying, selling, um, and forging even of relics, saints relics, because they were a valuable commodity. The reason that that was the case is, A, okay, it authenticated your church, but really what that meant was you could have pilgrims coming to your church, and pilgrims coming to a church to visit relics meant that they gave offerings, meant that they gave money, usually. Therefore, the more relics you had, or the more superior relics you had, the more money you're going to get into your church. And I always relate the medieval cathedral a bit like our modern day theme parks, because, you know, the better, the greater attractions you have in your theme park, the more money that the more people are going to come and the more money they're going to spend. So it's that sort of idea. And St. Thomas Beckett became the number one saint in England at this during this 12th, 13th century. He eclipsed St. Cuthbert at Durham Cathedral, who had been number one. And what that really triggered um, was a rivalry between Durham and York, uh, Durham and uh, Canterbury, sorry. And they therefore started adding and altering and elaborating their own uh, cathedrals in order to, you know, uh, keep up with the Joneses, whether it's in the north. <laughs> and so that's really why we get these our great cathedrals, as I say, but for pilgrims coming to Canterbury, well, firstly, the reason that he became such an important saint was that he was the Archbishop of Canterbury and he was effectively murdered by the state. You know, that was a huge, a huge problem. It would be a huge problem now. And therefore he became a martyr pretty much immediately. And vast amount of people even flocked to his, you know, dead body on the steps of the transept in Canterbury and started picking at his clothes and um, dipping bits of his uh, garments into his blood and taking it away. And they mixed his blood with holy water and drank it as an unction. So, you know, he was extremely important to them. But what this meant for them was that they could go and visit either his shrine or another another saint shrine in the hopes of cures or miracles. Because this, remember, this is a time without modern medicine. There's no Western medicine per se. 
And so you're relying on visiting a saint if you are infirm, you're unwell, you you had a bad harvest or whatever it might, whatever your ailment might be. And so you go to the saints in order to pray for that. So it, as I say, it became a vast infrastructure and enterprise within medieval Christendom. And I wanted to touch on that image of the theme parks because I love that line in the book. What evidence do we have of, of the experience of being a pilgrim visiting a cathedral? Um, was there a genuine sense of thrill like you would get going to a theme park? Yeah, I've, I mean, there are uh, pilgrims' accounts. Uh, they are rare rather than the norm, but, but by any stretch, we cannot say that there's a lot of them. But we have, uh, we do have one to Santiago de Compostela in Spain. Um, we do have um, Erasmus at, at Canterbury. Now, he is an elite pilgrim, so obviously his experience is slightly different to the every everyday layman and laywoman because he would have been able to get greater access but even still his description uh which is where a lot of in fact a lot of the description of the shrine comes from in the book and there, obviously there were other ambassadors etc but they are certainly awe-inspired you know th- this is a huge monument monumental structure in front of them covered in gilding and painting and gems and jewels lamps everywhere you could look beams hanging with offerings you know it was the best in the land or so so certain ambassadors and visitors opined so i think yes they would have been more overwhelmed than we are perhaps today um but i think the experience is pretty similar to be honest if if they still had the great saint thomas becket shrine we would have thought the same I've definitely thought about that before, and I hate to bring up Durham Cathedral again, but uh, <laughs> the way that um, Durham sort of sticks out of the peninsula of the city. Yeah. And when you're looking at it, you think how imposing and intimidating maybe it might have felt to somebody who that is the biggest thing they'd ever seen. That there's no, mm-hmm. there's obviously no skyscrapers. There's no, you know, the cathedral is going to be the biggest thing around. Yeah, I think Durham as well, even more so, because it really was a an instrument a tool of power for the prince bishops obviously at durham and william the conqueror the normans coming to england so you know yes these are great temples to god but some of them also have that kind of church versus state aspect or dual hybrid a hybrid aspect of we're serving two purposes here yeah but as well as that sense of reverence um yeah, I, I wanted to touch on some of the other um stories that you you raise in the book about um the Chaucer, the Chaucer story comes to mind of, is it the pilgrims misinterpreting a spear for a penis? Is that, have I, have I got that right? Well, yeah. So this comes from uh, the tale of Berin, which mm. is, um, which is the prologue to the Canterbury Tales, but it actually isn't written by Chaucer technically. Um, but it, that's beside the point really. Um, yeah. So there is evidence of tour guides, I suppose, is the way, um, and we we have there there is a little bit of evidence for this at York as well. That's the same way that we have tour guides today. Uh, the pilgrims would have come to the cathedrals, and they were wandering around and looking up at the stained glass and interpreting what they see in front of them and interpreting phallic symbols, if you will. Um, and we, you know, it still happens today. I still love wandering around cathedrals and hearing people trying to decipher what's going on in the windows, but. The reason that this is so important is because we have to remember that the services, particularly the mass, is said in, in Latin, not in the vernacular. So 
the everyday layman, no woman cannot understand, we did not understand, should I say, although literacy rates were higher than we tend to suggest, actually, but still, they wouldn't have been able to really understand the ecclesiastical Latin that the mass was being said in. And so the windows almost became stories or, you know, they have been termed Biblia Paporum or Bibles for the poor. And so the Bible stories are given in sort of an allegorical narrative sense through these windows. And that's why you see so many of them, even to this day, as I say, in the medieval era, as they still do to this day, people trying to interpret what actually is going on, you know, why are there monkeys in that window, you know, etc. And you also talk about, um, I was fascinated by this, the graffitiing that some people would do on the tomb of Beckett, maybe some of the more elite pilgrims who were, would be allowed to, would be allowed to approach the tomb. Uh, could you talk a bit about that? Because I was really, I was really struck by that because obviously graffitiing feels very at odds today with a, with a sense of reverence or respect for something, but obviously that wasn't the case for people who were visiting, were visiting his shrine. No. And I think it's, I, I, what I will say is graffiti is everywhere in our medieval churches and cathedrals. It's everywhere. Once you start looking, you can't miss it. And if you start looking at Canterbury, it is everywhere, particularly interestingly, also in the cloister, which why? Interesting. And there's actual drawings of outlines of uh, feet, you know, the soles of shoes and and then dates and names in them. There's absolutely loads of these shoes in the cloister, um, on the benches um, around, around the cloister. But as you walk down to the tubes, as you go down, well, in fact, as you come out of the east end of Canterbury's crypt, um, so the south side, you come up a set of stairs and to your right, there is a wall, which is sort of the retaining wall for the choir, covered absolutely covered in graffiti and then as you would have got to the tomb all around the shrine and the tomb area there would have been graffiti for example at Durham if we go back to Durham uh, the Neville screen which was placed in front or behind depending which way you're looking but sort of the the wall for the ferritry where St Cuthbert's shrine was is covered in graffiti both sides actually so it's kind of a, a mark of we think because graffiti is still underexplored but more and more researched. They are signs of blessing, of thanks, in, you know, giving thanks to that saint. Yes, it's a bit of I was ear sort of thing, as people do today, but it's more of that's that symbol of putting your mark on a place to say thanks in the hopes that uh, the reason for you being there is fulfilled. So if it's if you need a cure, if you need a miracle, it's in the hopes, you know, you write that in the hopes that that will be fulfilled. And there are other ways that this is done. It's not just graffiti, but pilgrim badges, obviously, you could buy pilgrim badges and the stores around outside are usually of cathedrals. And then you might put them on your um, on your scrip, um, which is your little bag or your hat, you know, as you're as you're going on your pilgrims to say, again, I've been here. But when you got home, they would often be crushed up sort of in your hand and thrown into water. And that was a symbolic act of hoping that the wish would be granted, Mm. essentially. Wow, that's an amazing image. I love that. It's absolutely fascinating. I think it's time to move on to our second scene. We've done Canterbury Cathedral. We've walked around. We've maybe we've graffitied something ourselves. Um, So where are we going to next in the year 1220? 
So we're moving across to the west of England now, um, the West Country, and to Salisbury. So 1220 was an extremely important year for Salisbury because it's its foundation year, essentially. The foundation stones were first interred um, at the site that is now what well, now where Salisbury Cathedral stands. So, um, so this is again another very interesting tale. So Salisbury Cathedral did not always stand where it stands today. It stood two miles away over at Old Serum, which is the great big Iron Age hill fort. And it had stood there for a couple of hundred years and was thrown up next to William the Conqueror's great, great castle there as well. And so it was a secular cathedral, as in it was run by a dean and a chapter of canons rather than monks, as we had at Canterbury. However, the governor of the castle and the bishop of Old Serum did not get on too well. And the governor um, of the castle didn't like the facts that, well, they just didn't like the secular canons, they just didn't like it, didn't like them, didn't get on very well. And one day the canons had been down at a rogation tide festival um, over over at Salisbury Plain, I think it was. It wasn't far away, and they came back up, obviously, to go home to their cathedral, um, and the governor wouldn't let them in to Old Sarah. So the bishop found out he actually wasn't in uh, at Old Sarah at this point. He was he was away and was told this, this tale and hurried back, and yes, they were allowed back in, but what this triggered was him moving the cathedral. Now, this wasn't new to him. His, his predecessor had been his brother. He'd been wanting to move the cathedral too for several years. And it wasn't just because of, you know, the neighbours from hell over in the castle. It was because um, the site wasn't well suited for a cathedral. Um, there are many contemporary chroniclers who describe it being bleak, dull, miserable. The gusts of wind used to surge through, extremely cold. The cathedral was sort of ricketing, essentially. And, and so um, Bishop Richard Poor at the time, he decided, who was bishop at the time of this, uh, 1219 as it was, he put it in and in 1219 he got the papal bulb to say, yes, from the Pope, you can move your cathedral, you have my permission. And so the next year, in 1220, um, I'd say about a year after he first got the papal bolt, five foundation stones were interred um, on the 28th of April, which was the feast of St. Vitalis. And there was a stone laid on behalf of the Pope and the Archbishop of um, Canterbury as well, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they all laid different, different stones. And as a result, um, Canterbury, Cathedral, sorry, Salisbury Cathedral, therefore commenced construction for the next 38 years. And with the laying of those foundation stones, was that a kind of important spiritual part of the process? You can't just, you couldn't just put, you know, start building a building and say, this is going to be a cathedral. There had to be, what was the kind of the spiritual aspect of it that made it, this is a sacred place. This is a house of God. Yeah. I mean, all cathedrals have, um, or did have foundation ceremonies, consecration ceremonies where there would be crowds of dignitaries and, you know, the, the sort of local communities as well, assembling to witness what was going on. This was an extremely important um, event. 
And as I say, the stones were dedicated to notable persons because they're sort of putting themselves, you know, in the stone symbolically. Mm. And, and and yes, and it is the the ceremonial blessing, if you will, of those stones and of that cathedral, and that it can commence. Mm. Yeah, I'm. I was just very interested by the way that I don't know how do you denote this particular place, this particular physical space. That that's one of the things that's so interesting about cathedrals. How do you kind of I don't know house divine divinity in 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 bricks and mortar. Well, I mean, they do. Um, uh, I mean, the, all the consecration ceremonies are quite similar. Mm. And what's tend to have done is, um, you know, holy water will be sprinkled. There will be a procession. There will be a choir singing certain hymns and chants, etc. And then, um, you know, over um, in northern France, I remember. Um, they did quite a lot of times they would do things like uh, Saint-Denis where the king would put in his uh, ring as well as coronation ring, different jewels and gemstones and things. So it's sort of a, a treasure trove and time capsule are sort of cemented, metaphorically speaking, within um, within the foundation stones and it's blessed. There is a it's a blessing ceremony. Yeah. Mm, fascinating. I wanted to talk to you a bit about um, the man who you describe or we could perhaps describe as the project manager of mm-hmm. Salisbury Cathedral. Could you introduce us to Elias Deerham? And also, could you tell us why he was once described as the only honest man in England? Well, I mean, that's an interesting one, but probably because it was done by a friend, said by a friend. Um, but um, Elias was actually a very important person at this time. He, um, not only was he interested with um, delivering a couple of the copies of Magna Carta. You know, he was there at the ceiling of Magna Carta in 1215. He, um, including, therefore, he he delivered one of the engrossments, i.e. the copies, to Old Serum. So that started his affiliation, if you will, and he later became a canon. But he was similar to the 13th century project manager, but his official title was Rector of the Fabric. Um, And... He was he, he was just a person who seemed to be involved in all of these great cathedral building projects. And as I say, eventually became a canon of the cathedral. So he uh, of Old Serum. So he started PMing the the rest of Salisbury, but he'd also been PM slash designer to over at Canterbury for St. Thomas Beckett Shrine. So he, together with the sacristan at St. Albans, they had been the great designers of that. So he kind of had a you know, precedent and his reputation preceded him. And he was, he was simply an honest man who you could trust. And, you know, a lot of the um, ecclesiastical dignitaries had realised this and therefore they entrusted him to PM, if you will, these great ecclesiastical projects. Mm. I just love that description of him. I remember someone once telling me that I went to visit the Pantheon in Rome and I remember someone telling me that we, this might not be true, <laughs> that we have lost some of the building, the ancient building techniques. Um, we don't know We don't know how they constructed the Pantheon with the, the tools that they had and what they had available to them then. And um, whether that is true or not, <laughs> it was making me think uh, in this book about the kind of reverse engineering that you've had to have done and how easy is it to figure out how these huge amazing immensely technically complicated um buildings were built at a time when you know they didn't exactly have big machines to lift all the heavy rocks for them and everything 
the, the, the kind of technical engineering aspect of it I found fascinating. Well, they did, I suppose, is the answer, is they did have great machines. So, for example, at um, Beverly, Salisbury, I want to say Peterborough, there are three surviving medieval windlasses, which are essentially huge, big hamster wheels. And they are sited up in, usually in the crossing towers, so over the centre of the cathedral. And if you go, for example, to Salisbury Cathedral, stand in the crossing and look up, it looks like there's a very sort of dark circle above you. And, you know, it looks very odd. But actually what that is, is from the windlass, from this great hamster wheel, was um, a rope because the hamster wheel would winch up, there'd be a basket on the bottom of it, and it would winch up your materials. So, of course, you know, these great towers were built after, you know, you're sort of building a cathedral upwards. So you need the stones to get there. Therefore, you need to winch them up. And so that's how they got them up there. And yes, okay, when we get to the final chapter, which is Florence, you'll see as well some very interesting tales, and we see um, patents applied for for certain machines that become re the re first reverse gear and things like that. So I think my point is, you know, we still had great timber scaffolding, similar to what we still do. And the expertise and experience of numerology and geometry and mathematics, I think, is really what's at the heart of these buildings and why they are as successful as they are. Mm. Um, and how they managed to build in the way that they did. Now, this is, of course, without saying that I should point out there are many mistakes in medieval cathedrals. And you have lots of breaks in construction. You have lots of bits and pieces that are patched over because they simply didn't work out the mathematics or they ran out of money or whatever. But in order to understand them today, we have to put together several different things, whether it's from looking at style to looking at dates to looking at who was the master mason, et cetera, et cetera, and just putting it together, really, with, with all different, it's sort of an interdisciplinary jumble or jigsaw puzzle. Mm. And on the construction of Salisbury Cathedral, you write in the book that it was unusually fast compared mm. to other, yeah. other cathedrals in England. Um, could you tell listeners a bit about that? Um, how did that happen and, and why? Yeah, I mean, Salisbury Cathedral is took 38 years. And if you look at Salisbury you will see that it's very, very typically early English and early English Gothic, I mean by that. And it is very um, consistent and homogenous in its design. But if I say to you, you know, look at Salisbury and then look at York, which is the simplest, you'll probably say Salisbury. And it is quite a simple design before we get to that very decorated Gothic that we see at York. Um, and essentially the reason that it was built so quickly was because they had the funds, because they had the great PMs and Master Mason, and because they had Richard Poor steering the design. And of course, we have to remember that he he and his predecessors had been had their eye on a move for some time. You know, it, it had been going on for long. Now, don't get me wrong, there was for a period, there was a timber church prior to the stone one that they started to build on the same site where Sol of Salisbury Cathedral, where it still lies today. But they brought with them, you know, about 300 or more um, masons, craftsmen, workmen, essentially, to build this. It was, you know, a city within a city, really. And that's why Salisbury is sited where it is today. So 
I suppose the the reason just simply is a bit of luck in some respects, because I suppose I could argue that no cathedral is finished, really, but a lot of them luck the way they do because of breaks in construction, because of, I don't know, everything from the Black Death to changes in Master Mason to running out of money to fire, whereas Salisbury was just lucky in that respect. It's fascinating to hear you talk about the the kind of I love imagining the construction period and the flurry of activity and the fact that were these were the cathedrals in use at the time as well as being built with it was there a sense of kind of overlap that over decades you'd have like you know the monks in one area trying to do their prayers and then the kind of hammering away in another section of the of the craftsmen yeah yeah, yeah you do um, usually when the east end is completed then it's consecrated again, um, and therefore it's in use, and the monks or the, the canons will, will start using it, move from their temporary building or move from their previous building and, and go in there, and then they'll start on the western end. That's usually predominantly how cathedrals are constructed. It's not always the case, but but usually, and then the nave, et cetera, will be finished, and then you'll have your, your laymen and laywomen filing in after that. Yeah. It just was a, I was kind of interested in that, in that image because obviously when we go to visit cathedrals and churches now they can be so quiet and so kind of um very very peaceful and I love the idea of a cathedral being actually somewhere of lots of activity is that would that be the case not just during construction but afterwards as well oh definitely um I think we we tend to have a quite a, a Victorian perspective on cathedrals so our churches even of that very solemn quiet nature when we go in into a church Whereas in the medieval era, that wasn't quite the case. You know, knaves were, there would be a lot of hustle and bustle. Um, You know, people were meeting. It was a sort of community or parish hall, really. You know, they'd be seeing their friends. They would be selling their wares. Uh, Dogs would have been running around, you know, hence why you get um, dog whippers in in centuries going on. So they they were just a hybrid of activity. And I think we, we tend to forget that today. As Emma's book explores, cathedrals have long been sites of drama, innovation and reflection. And they're also places of great artistic expression from the craftsmanship of those who carved their pillars and set their stained glass to those who created the music of worship played down the centuries. To experience some of this for yourself, why not join a tour organised by our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours? Many of ACE's itineraries take an in-depth look at the human stories behind ecclesiastical architecture, from medieval hammerbeam roofs in rural Norfolk churches to the layers of history at St Edmundsbury in Suffolk. Other ACE tours take in the wealth of music festivals hosted in some of Britain's greatest cathedrals, with plans for 2023 including the evocative St Magnus Festival in beautiful Orkney and the perennially popular Three Choirs Festival, which will take place in Gloucester next year. You can find out more by visiting www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. That leads us on really nicely, I think, to our third and final cathedral that we're going to visit. Would you like to tell us where we are? Yes, so now we are moving over to northern France in and over to Chartres. Uh, so another great early Gothic cathedral. And at this time, 1220, the cathedral had been 
in construction for about 80 years, something like that. So, you know, Salisbury was already technically would have been completed if it had gone along the same lines. And William Le Breton, the uh, French chronicler and poet, he described the vaults. So at this time, the vaulting was going up, which means the roof is starting to be constructed. So we are sort of towards the end of construction. And he he described it as beginning to close like the shell of a tortoise. Um, and rib vaulting, which is what um, Gothic cathedrals are known for, really, it's one of the sort of three ingredients, which includes, you know, uh, pointed arches and flying buttresses. Um, rib vaulting does look like the shell of a tortoise. It sort of splays outwards and downwards and um, a little bit like a sort of spider's web as well. So I think what he's what he's describing is is very, very on point, if you will. Mm, very evocative. Why did you want to visit this particular cathedral? Shadra is a very interesting site. There's a lot, there's a lot going on, but it sort of started, the cathedral there started around another relic. And this was the Holy Shamiz, the Veil or Shamiz, as it's called, Santa Camisa of the Virgin Mary, who it's the, the tunic that she's supposed to have worn during um, Christ's birth or Annunciation. And they had it there. And it had been gifted to the Bishop of Chartres uh, in the ninth century by King Charles the Bald, Charlemagne's grandson. And, um, and therefore, the cult of the Virgin, so essentially her, the cult that grew around the Virgin Mary, became central to Chartres and the birth of the place itself, not just cathedral, but Chartres itself. And then what's really interesting about Chartres is to something that's called the cult of carts. Now, what the cult of carts is, it's still highly debated whether this actually occurred, but it centers around the idea that there was a surge of building fever um, at this period. And, and as, as we will have, as hopefully the audience has, has realized, 1220 was a height of cathedral building. You know, there was Salisbury, there was Wells, there was Canterbury, you know, there was Chartres, there was Saint-Denis. They were all of them, either been finished or started, et cetera. Mm. And as a result, um, there was this idea that people, the you know, everyday layman, laywomen around Chartres started essentially giving over their um, supply of unpaid manpower, muscle power, and started toiling away and sort of hauling carts of provisions needed and essentially started building the cathedral um, for nothing. You know, they weren't paid. These were just supposedly devout citizens. And some scholars suggested this was a bit stage managed. Um, It was a sort of look at us, you know, look, it's sort of PR um, game really. Uh, look at us, look at all of our devout citizens. This is why we have the cult of the Virgin. This is why it's such an important place. Others suggest that, um, well, simply they were getting indulgences. So they were getting something out of it, whether it was, you know, um, they could pass through purgatory to heaven easier or something like that. But it it is a phenomenon which reappears. We It supposedly occurred at Saint-Denis and, you know, just outside of Paris too. But it, there is just this re- repetitive idea of, an emotional laden building fever, um, which was is also, also almost a legacy for these cathedrals. It was almost part and parcel of their ancestry and history. They really wanted to cling on to. Whether it occurred or not, we don't know. But there are 
there are images, depictions of this sort of thing um, throughout the Miracles of the Virgin window um, in, for example, the Inshatra as well. And there's a couple of other miracle windows which depict sort of every day the guilds, you know, the Guild of the Bakers, the Vintners, all those sort of things. So it's, did they give money or were they part and parcel of this great cathedral building drive? And it's a irresistible thought, isn't it? The community all kind of brick by brick building up this amazing, yeah. beautiful, beautiful building. This is the only cathedral that you have chosen to visit this year, which is in France rather than England. And I just wanted to talk a bit about maybe the differences between the two styles. Um, is there a noticeable difference between English cathedral architecture and French cathedral architecture? Or is there really a lot of communication going on between the, the um, religious communities in, in both countries? It's sort of yes and no to that, really. I mean, Gothic did technically start in northern France. So the style itself technically did. Now, this is interesting in and of itself because the sort of narrative that is harped on, if you will, is that Abbot Suger of Saint-Denis, the Abbey Church of Saint-Denis, was the father of Gothic and that it, the Gothic style fully formed. Well, that's not quite the case. There had been, you know, pointed arches used even on Cistercian architecture, you know, Cistercian monks, for centuries and over in Persia and and throughout Europe, the tools of Gothic, the ingredients, pointed arches, flying buttresses started. They all appeared in different places. It's just, and rib vaulting as well, you know, I think Durham Cathedral, the, the first fully rib vaulted, stone rib vaulted, um, stone vaulted ceiling so of, of a cathedral. So all of these have been going on. It's just that at Saint-Denis, it was the first place where they were, all the ingredients were put together so my point there is too that master masons were itinerant they did move from one site to the next so you find the same master masons working on french cathedrals as you do english you know such as william sons even at canterbury you know he came from sons in france so that's why there is a real similarity if you will between the gothic style but what also developed in france was the rayonant style so it's a very light filled and of course we have our version because we have early english and then we move to decorated so our path of gothic splits and it takes on its own life at at either place and is influenced by different things you know whether it be anglo-norman architecture um or whether it's influenced by romanesque over on the other side and you know other influences too so yes there are the main ingredients yes the main sort of skeletal lightful structures are the same but they do develop sort of different features yeah mm. that leads me on really nicely to my next question because i just wanted to talk about um the particular um style at Chartres and you talk in the book about this amazing the tortoise shell um as you said at the start but the kind of the height of the east end and it's unusual in that sense could you could you tell listeners a bit about that well it, it isn't and it isn't it isn't I suppose what's so interesting though about the gothic style of course we have to say that maximum height and light were the two aims of gothic and therefore, um, you know, you you have to 
nothing really below 100 meters was considered fitting, if you will, for a Gothic cathedral. And as a result of that, um, as the Gothic era moved on and as Gothic developed, so did this quest to build higher, brighter, more skeletal structures. And therefore, that's why we get so many flying buttresses up off the end of Chartres, off the end of Notre Dame, the east end. And that's what we can see, this great upsidal, uh, which is in the photograph that you're mentioning, this great upsidal east end um, at Chartres. And what's also interesting as well, we see this at Chartres, we also see this at Notre Dame, um, again, going back to numerological numerological significance. And what I mean by that is that um, you, a, a lot of these cathedrals were built according to cubit measurements. And, you know, you'd have 30 cubit measurements for your first level, 60 to the second. And essentially, in short, what this refers to is biblical measurements. And we see this too at York Minster. There's 144 panels in the Great East Window. There's 144 tracery panels above it. And the window depicts Book of Revelation. Book of Revelation depicts, you know, the beginning and end of the world. What happens then? Souls are saved and damned and 144,000 souls were to be saved. So there is so much numerological significance and that's to what we see throughout these northern French, particularly Gothic cathedrals, these biblical proportions. It's, therefore, they become these sort of light-filled temples. Mm. Well, Emma, thank you so much for taking us through just three of, of the most iconic cathedrals in Europe. Um, it's been really a pleasure to get to know them a bit better. Um, and I also reading the book and finding out about plenty of others as well um, across the continent. So thank you so much. But before we go, I had two questions that I wanted to ask you. The first is, do you have a favourite cathedral? And the second is, um, of course, what memento you're going to bring back from 1220. So favourite cathedral. This is hard. And everyone keeps asking me this question. <laughs> on the book tour. I don't. In short, I don't. And I tell you why I keep giving that answer. It's simply because as we've discovered today, there are so many interesting tidbits about each cathedral. Now, if I were if I had a gun to my head, I might argue Salisbury Cathedral. Mm. And Salisbury and Wells. Okay, we'll go to both. <laughs> and the reason for this is that Salisbury is so it is an ordered simplicity. It is simple, but it's an ordered simplicity. And what I find so fascinating about Salisbury is, A, this move from old Sarum to new, and the importance of uh, St. Osmond to the cathedral, which isn't really, you wouldn't really know even that you walk past his tomb today. But what I find most fascinating is the link between Salisbury and Wells, because William Joy, the master mason, who was master mason at both, he installed um, strainer arches into the eastern crossing at Salisbury, as a template for what he then installed at Wells, the huge, great, big X that you find as, as you walk into the nave and up towards the crossing. Those big scissor arches and strainer arches, they look like angry owl eyes sort of thing. They were templated and modelled on Salisbury, where he sort of, you know, he did a test run, if you will, there. So that's why Salisbury and Wells are my two favourite. And then what would I bring back? Gosh. This is tricky. This is tricky. 
But if I can't bring back a person, because Beckett would be good to find out what they are. <laughs> but I would bring back his shrine. I would bring back St. Thomas Beckett's shrine. There have been academics at the University of York who recently sort of modelled what his um, shrine would have looked like, sort of CGI modelled. I just don't think we will ever see that. Um, yes, we do ha- still have some of the shrines left, Edmund Edward, but but not nothing on the scale mm. of what St. Thomas Becketts was like. And so I just want to see that shrine in all its gilded glory with all the, the offerings attached to it all over and all the devout pilgrims congregating around it. Mm. And of course, that was something that was destroyed during the Reformation. Yeah. 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 Beckett's bones supposedly burned, but highly unlikely that was the case. They were likely buried somewhere. Mm. Yeah, that's a fantastic one. And I would also love to, I would love to see it as well. Amazing. Emma, thank you so much. It's really been totally enlightening and I definitely feel better informed about cathedrals than when we started. So thanks so much for joining us. That's great. Thank you so much for having me. That was me, Artemis Irvin, speaking to Dr. Emma Wells about the year 1220. Heaven on Earth, The Lives and Legacies of the World's Greatest Cathedrals is published by Head of Zeus and is available to buy now. As always, you can visit our website to see pictures of the cathedrals discussed in this episode and to find out more about what we spoke about. And you can also browse our extensive archive at tttpodcast.com and look out for the timeline to see if you can find a particular year you're interested in. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.